Thank you for listening to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and encourages you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and resources, visit hopeboon.com. We used to have a preacher that would come to our church often when I was a, a young boy, and he would ask the question, are you happy? And then people would say yes, and he would say, notify your face that you're happy. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. You know, stuff that only preachers can say and get away with. Amen. Oh, yeah. Well, we have a reason to be happy, don't we? Amen. I listened to, I listened to a speech the other day um, that was given by former President Ronald Reagan. I don't know how I came across it, but it was in my YouTube uh, feed, you know. And of course, President Reagan's no longer alive, and and uh, and this was from kind of a. a, a like from the late 70s, he had just appeared on Johnny Carson and he wasn't yet the president. But he made this statement and it struck me. He said, I keep telling people all the time that if we could triple our, our problems, we would still be the most blessed people in the world. Obviously, that didn't have the same effect on you as it did on me, but that's neither here nor there. Sitting in my, just kidding. I was sitting in my living room and I was so struck by that statement. I thought to myself, man, if that's ever been true, it's true now. Man, if we, if we, I know that people go through challenging times, they go through difficult seasons and and all of that. But man, I, I told my children, I made my kids listen to it. I said, listen, if we tripled or quadrupled the problems that we have in our life, we're still beyond blessed. Amen. We're still beyond blessed. We have so much to be thankful for and so much to be excited about and so much to take joy in and so much to thank God for in our lives. I don't know what every person faces every day of their lives. I only know what I go through and what I face. But, but I'm here to tell you this morning that no matter what you're facing and no matter what you're dealing with, you're blessed. Amen. You have a reason to be joyful. You have a reason to be thankful. My kids and I were, and my wife and my mom was there too. We were sitting down having lunch yesterday and one of my daughters got some urgent messages from one of her friends. And the, I'm not going to be too descriptive about what the messages said because I don't want to say too much. But this young person was reaching out to my daughter in, in, in despair and in total need and was, was saying, some, saying some things that were of great concern. And my daughter was able to start to speak life into her, start to tell her how much Jesus loves her and how much, how much value there is in, in, in her life. And all of us got rocked and all of us stopped to pray for this person in the house and take some time to just, just 
speak life over this individual. And, and I got done and I looked at my kids and I said, you know what? This is who we are. This is who we're called to be. You're the kind of person, you're the kind of friend that, that you know, may, maybe they don't follow you on TikTok, but who gives a rip about that? They call you when they have a need. And that's who Jesus has called us to be as a family. And that's who Jesus has called us to be as a church. I'm here to tell you, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through, there's hope in the name of Jesus. There's power in the blood of Jesus. There's victory in the kingdom of Jesus. There's life for you to be had in God's plan for your life. And we wear those t-shirts that say hope dealer on them. We're hope dealers for a reason, man. I don't. Maybe, maybe you're not the most popular kid in school. Maybe you don't have all the best friends. Maybe your life doesn't look like you want it to look like. Maybe, maybe the idealized version of your life is not what you've experienced or realized yet. But if they're calling you for prayer, you're in the right place. If they're calling you because they need hope, you got something to be thankful for. Whew. Get me fired up this morning. Man, I'm just so thankful this morning. I'm so grateful. So grateful for what we're called to do and who we're called to be. Amen. Amen, amen. All right, that's enough of that. Hallelujah. If you're with us this morning for the first time ever, or or if you're here for the first time maybe in a while and, and you haven't been a part of our series that we've been doing, we have been in a pretty profound, I think, profound series on the book of James. And and it has been just so magnificently good. My life has been changed by this book this summer. Amen. Can you say the same thing? Has your life been changed by this book this summer? I know mine has. Before we jump into our review of of last week's uh, portion of James that we covered, we have been doing a review each Sunday of our core values as a church and as a ministry. And we've, there are five core values that we hold uh, very dear to our hearts here at Hope Church. And we've been reviewing those each and every Sunday. We've actually, this is our, our 10th part of the book of James. So we're actually making our way through uh, the, 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 all the way through the second time of our five core values. And today we're starting them for the third time. We're back at core value number one again. So I don't know if anybody want to take a crack and Tell me what the core values are before they put the graphic up on the screen. Anybody want to know? Anybody want to tell me what? All right. Who can tell me what core value number one is? We value God's word. Thank you, Kirby. Someone who pays attention. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We value. She is your teacher. That's she's her teacher brain just kicks in. It's great. Hallelujah. We value five things at Hope Church. Number one, we value God's word. Number two, we value God's presence. Number three, we value God's family. Number four, we value God's character. And then number five, we value God's culture. And these, these five things just define the culture of our church. And, and they're, they're something we try to keep in front of us all the time as leaders so that we know uh, that we're, doing, we're moving in the right direction. So today we're going to talk again and review for the third time the fact that we value God's word. What does that mean? It means we value preaching and teaching. Paul said that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to bring the gospel into the world. Uh, It seems a little silly sometimes that a big group of people would sit and listen to one person talk, but that's preaching. And that's the method that God has chosen to bring his word into the hearts of people. And so we believe in preaching and teaching the Bible. 
We believe that God's word is the essence of God's heart. It's the essence of his thoughts. Uh, there's so much that I could say about the word of God, but um, I was telling uh, Isabel this morning, we were talking about a book uh, that she's reading by, by one of my favorite, probably my favorite Bible teacher of all time. And, and we we're just talking about how you can never get too much of the Bible. You just can never get too much of God's word. Amen. It's never going to hurt you to be in the scripture and to invest yourself. So we believe in preaching and teaching. We also believe in discipleship. Uh, discipleship is so important. Uh, it's so important, as a matter of fact, that it was the last thing Jesus said before he left this planet. He said, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation and of every culture. So we have a job to make disciples of this world. We also have a job of making disciples of ourselves. Amen. We need ourselves to be discipled and disciplined in the things of God. So we believe that it's God's word that does that for us, that teaches us how to be disciples. And so we place a high value and a high priority on that here at Hope Church. Amen. All right. Um, I want to get into our review for today and uh, just get back into the book of James. I'm just going to quickly review what we talked about in the conclusion of chapter four last week. And then we'll jump into chapter five this week. We'll, we'll go through really the first half of chapter five this week. There'll be some, some encouraging things there. And then of course, as Vanessa reminded us, we will not be talking about James next week because we will be in the park baptizing people and eating food together and just having fun. So please, again, I'll say it again at the end of service, but please don't come here next week. We will not be here. The doors will be locked. Inevitably, someone comes to church every year and we get a text. Or was it, was, did we not have a church? Like, no, we've announced it 47 times. It's not my fault. Amen. Just don't come to church next week. Come to the park in Valley Cruces, okay? But then the, the following week when we're back here together, we will be talking about and concluding our series. Right in time for kids to go back to school and for us to get back into our rhythms of life, we're going to wind down the book of James, and it's going to be powerful. But let's quickly review chapter 4. Last week, James reminded us of the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount regarding judgment. Do you remember that illustration that I gave you with my daughter, Claire, last week? We learned what it really means to judge another person, means to talk down to them. And the only way that I can talk down to you is if I choose to elevate myself and put myself into a place that Jesus didn't put me into. Amen? Because how many of you know that without our pride, we're all on the same level, man? We're all standing on the firm foundation that is Christ Jesus. We're all standing in this grace. Paul talks about the grace in which he stands. All of us are standing in the grace of God together, and we're all on the same level. So if I'm ever going to talk down to you, or if you're ever going to talk down to me, it's because one of us has elevated ourselves to a position that we were not supposed to be in. We said that the only judgment that really we're called to, Paul tells us, is to judge ourselves, right? So that's it. That's all we're really called to when it comes to judge. We're supposed to judge ourselves. I said this, that the only person who deserves your critique is you. Amen. If you're going to get a tattoo, get that. Just a reminder. Everybody's just talking about getting tattoos these days. So if you're going to get a tattoo, just get a tattoo that reminds you that you're the only one who deserves your critique. Then we, of course, closed 
James chapter 4 with James giving us some safeguards in three areas. The areas of our priority, the areas of our presumption, and the areas of our pride. If you can guard yourself and if you can let the Word of God guard you in your priorities, then you'll always be in the right order. You seek first the kingdom of God. Then if you can be guarded in your presumptions, you won't get out ahead of God. He talked about us going and, you know, saying, oh, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do that and I'm going to do this. I'm going to make these big plans that are self-centered plans. And if we can be safeguarded in our presumptions, we don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know, uh, you know, what the future holds, but we need to put God first. And then we'll be guarded in our presumptions. And then the third thing is in our pride. If we will learn to put the Lord first, he'll keep us out of pride. Amen. So thankful. We're going to read James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Before we do that, I want to uh, just make our confession of faith together that we like to make. If you're watching with us online, I have to adjust now. I'm used to the camera being over there. Now I get to look straight down the barrel. Uh, If you're joining us online, you'll see this graphic on your screen. Those who are in the house today will see it. Let's declare this out loud together. Can you read together? Thank you, Father that today today I am growing in the things of God amen we believe we're growing in the things of God this morning is anybody excited today hallelujah let's pray father we thank you once again for the opportunity to come before your word to receive the precious and priceless word of the living God. Lord, help us not to take lightly this precious word. For in it is everything that we need to be sustained in life. In it is everything we could ever desire to know your heart, to know your thoughts, to know your intentions and your plans. Lord, Give us eyes to see and a heart that would perceive and understand your word that we might learn to cherish it. That we might be like David and say of your word that it is our necessary food. It is more important to us than even the food which we eat every day. God, that we would become so dependent upon your word. Lord, let your word penetrate our hearts today. Give us what we need to see and understand so that we could live with the clarity that only your word brings. For Lord, as you said, we would know the truth and the truth would make us free. Father, I declare in Jesus' name that we know the truth this day and that those under the sound of my voice today are made free because they've heard your word. In Jesus' mighty name, we declare these things. Let everyone say amen. Amen and amen. So let's go ahead and read. James chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 1, read down through verse 12. It says, come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries. That's great. Thank you, James. (laughs) Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
So positive and encouraging. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. You have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You've condemned, you've murdered the just, and he does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. This is a strong one. Probably one of the strongest sections in this book, right before James turns the corner. If we were to continue reading in verse 13, you would see James begin to turn a corner and get very encouraging. And that, of course, is what we're going to save for our very last time in the book of James together. But I, I'm in reading this this week and studying it, um, boy, there, there's just so much, so many ways in which James sounds like Jesus in this, in this verse or in this passage. If you were to take this passage, and then go back to the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. There's so many things from the second half of the book of James that are just like, it's almost like they were just plucked right out of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and James is, is really sounding like his older half-brother Jesus in this one. He, he kind of just goes after rich people in this verse or in this first passage. And, and to be honest with you, was something that when I first read through it months ago in, pre in preparation for this and then in study as I've gone along, I've thought, boy, that's really kind of presents some challenges. Because I, you know, I, I've believed and taught for years and years my whole life that God wants us to be blessed. And the Bible is, is replete with examples of the fact that God wants us to be blessed. And so when you, read, when you get to a passage like this, it presents some challenge, and you have to say, okay, i got to really understand what is the Bible saying here. So you read the opening six verses of this chapter, and they seem to make an argument against the rich on the surface. In fact, this is one of the passages that's often used as a scriptural proof text by people who would, be, who would argue against the blessing of the Lord. And, and these, these kind of texts make challenges for people like me who have to have the job of preaching and teaching. Because on the one hand, you have a passage like this where, where James is 
calling out rich people and saying, woe to you, you're, you know, you're, your riches are going to eat you up like fire. And then on the other hand, you've got King Solomon saying in the book of Proverbs, the blessing of the Lord makes a man rich and he adds no sorrow to it. So what do you do with that? What do you do when the Bible presents to you a seeming contradiction? Well, one thing I try to remember as often as I can, and it's, I found it to be very helpful, is this thought. No truth of God's word stands independent of another truth from God's word. I'll give you a real easy one to understand because this is one that they've been fighting about for 2,000 years, so it's pretty easy for everybody to understand. There's a difference between grace and faith, right? Just giving you an example of how, of, of how sometimes the Bible presents truths, and if we're foolish and we cherry-pick a truth, then we're going to enter into some error, okay? So, so take, take, for example, grace and faith. Grace, on the one hand, is everything that God has done for us, right? Grace, as an acronym, a lot of people use this one, God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. I, I, I like this one that, that I heard from Charles Capps years ago. He said, grace is God's willingness to use all of heaven's resources on your behalf, even when you don't deserve it. It's every bit of what God has intended for the human race freely extended and given to us. We don't have to work for it. Matter of fact, we can't. We can't earn it. And the moment you think you can and start getting arrogant about it, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble, right? So you got grace on one side of the equation. On this other side, you got faith. And faith is all about man's response to the grace of God. Faith is God made a promise in his word according to his grace. I believe it, I receive it, and I'm going to live as though I have already laid hold of that thing that God has promised to me. That's faith, man. It goes against what you can see. It goes against what you can feel. Oftentimes your faith needs to become the driving force in your life when you're going through a challenge and you can't seem to see your way out of it. you got to say, man, I'm going to lay hold of this thing that God said about me in his word, and I'm going to believe it. That's faith. So, so what happens when those two things seem to be at odds with each other? I mean, where's your breakthrough going to come from? Your faith or God's grace? Yes. Both. Where's, where's the answer going to come from? God's grace or your faith? Uh-huh. But see, we do ourselves a disservice when we take a hold of a single subject at the expense of all the other things that God has said in his word. This is why Paul says in the book of Acts that he said, I did not withhold, this is my paraphrase, I did not withhold from teaching you the full counsel of God. Meaning, I'm going to give you everything that I can from what God has said in his word so that you understand that faith is important and grace is important. So when I, does that make sense, that analogy? Yes? Okay, it's okay to nod in church and do that. It's, just, it's fine. Yes, amen. Uh, when you're presented with 
something in the scripture that seems a bit at odds with something else in the scripture, the, the, the thing to do is not to lay hold of one at the expense of the other, but do your best to press into both of them. So now here we are in, in James, and he's opening this chapter. He's starting a new thought, and he's just laying waste to rich people. And you go, okay, well, what is it, James? Does the blessing Lord make me rich and add no sorrow, or should I weep and cry and mourn and howl? This creates an opportunity for us to take an appropriate, balanced view of what Scripture really says. Again, to take one truth from the Word of God out of its place and hold it at the expense of the rest of truth leads to error. I'm just going to tell you right off the beginning, upon examining the first six verses of this chapter, all you got to do is read it two or three times and you get it. We can see that James is not simply condemning those who are wealthy but rather condemning those who are wicked and have used their wealth to satisfy their own flesh. A major takeaway, not the major takeaway perhaps, but a major takeaway from the first six verses is this reminder that power and influence and money make you more of what you already are. If you're a huge jerk, more money just makes you a huger jerk. Amen. If you're a generous person, then having more money means you're going you're gonna to have more opportunity to be more generous. You see, money and power and influence and those kinds of things that the, that, that the world seems to fantasize about constantly... Those things are just simply amplifiers. All they do is give you more opportunities to be who you already are. Again, if you're a jerk, a million dollars is just going to give you a million more opportunities to be a jerk. Right? We can clearly see here that James is going after those whose wealth has amplified their wickedness. And in fact, he spells out in, over the course of three verses a pretty clear-cut pattern that we should be aware of, especially as people who are blessed and those to whom God is continuing to bless. If you're, if you're being blessed and God is continuing to bless you and continuing to promote you, the Bible says that promotion comes from the Lord, right? So if God's promoting you, then you ought to treat these first six verses as a checklist of what not to do. Yeah, not as many amens on that one, but that's fine. We'll get there. Let me read, <laughs> let me read this to you from the New Living Translation because it, it cleans it up a little bit for us to, to understand in our modern English. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because all of the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Stop there. Just a great example. Just a great reminder that no matter how much you paid for them shoes, at some point they're going to get a hole at the bottom of them. Amen. This is coming from a person who really likes nice shoes. Okay. Your gold and your silver are corroded. The, the very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. I love that from the New Living because it highlights the first of James's pattern that we're going to talk about. Keep going. He says, this corroded treasure for you 
excuse me, this corroded treasure you've hoarded will testify against you in the day of judgment. Now, again, he's not saying you shouldn't save money. There's a lot of other places in the Bible that tell us to save money. He's teaching us not to put our trust in money. For listen, verse 4, hear the cries of the field workers from whom you have cheated of their pay. Their cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. Can I tell you something real quick? We read it here, the Lord of heaven's armies uh, in the New King James and in the Old King James, it says the Lord of the Sabaoth. And you maybe probably remember me reading that. Anytime God is ticked off, he's going to remind you that he's the Lord of the Sabaoth. The Sabaoth is, all, is the Old Testament word, it's the Hebrew word for all of the angels in heaven. All of heaven's warring armies. So anytime God wants to really get your attention, he's going to remind you that he's in, head, he's the char, in charge and the head of all the armies of angels in heaven. Don't cross the Lord. Let's keep going. Verse 5. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You've condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Is he one of the one of the problems that, or, or, or the, the patterns rather that James is going to un, unleash for us and, and lay out for us here is three things. And they come from verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5. The first one from verse 3 is this idea that, that one of James's problems with the wicked rich in this passage is that they've counted on their money instead of counting on the Lord. Look at verse 4 again. Or excuse me, verse 3. Your, your gold and your silver are corroded right here. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. James isn't telling you not to be blessed. He's telling you not to count on the blessing as your source. And I'm here to tell you that as somebody who's had seasons of my life where I've had absolutely nothing and seasons of my life where I've been absolutely abundantly blessed and had too much, I'm telling you from my own experience that when you have too much and when you have an absolute abundance, if you don't guard your heart, you'll put trust in that. And the moment that it leaves, you'll get sad and depressed and fearful. I like, I've heard this before. People that, people that hate this subject of blessing and prosperity and stuff, people that really get frustrated about it, I like to ask this question. What, what is too much? How much is too much? How much is too much? And the best answer that I've ever heard in my life is this. Whatever's too much is whatever the dollar amount that replaces trust. Whatever the dollar amount is that places, replaces trust. Everybody's got a line. For you, it could be $25 or $25 million. It's whatever number replaces trust. That the minute that you cross that line, you stop trusting in God to be your source and to meet all your needs. And you go, I don't need the Lord. I got 25 G's in the bank. James is telling us that that's the dividing line between walking in the faith and the grace that God has provided, walking in our needs being met as Jesus being our source and putting our own trust in our own abilities. Boy, pride's a sneaky thing, y'all. God bless you. Your silver and your gold, excuse me, your gold and your silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on 
will eat away your flesh like fire. Why does James so mad at these, this particular group of rich people that he's talking to? Not because they're rich, but because they're wicked. They've made their money an idol and have given it the first place in their hearts. Amen. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. And you don't have to turn there. Just listen to this. I'll read it to you in the Message Bible. It says, Tell those rich in this world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves and so obsessed with money, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Tell them to go after God, who piles on all the riches we could ever manage, to do good, to be rich in helping others, to be extravagantly generous. If they do that, they'll build a treasury that will last, gaining life that is truly life. Boy, isn't that good? Now, let me just say this real quick, just to make sure that I'm calling out everybody equally. You read that first verse or that first sentence from 1 Timothy 16 or 6. Tell those rich people in this world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves and so obsessed with money. It's super easy for poor people to talk that way. Amen. Listen, it's always going to be easy and fulfilling to your flesh to talk bad about the whoever is on the other side of the equation, right? If you're broke, it's going to be super easy. Yeah, you tell those rich people, quit, quit being rich and rich. You tell those richy people, you better, you, you, you learn to trust God. And then you got to look at yourself in the mirror and go, do I trust God? Maybe I don't have as much as this person has. Doesn't automatically mean I have faith. <laughs> I'm just trying to make this an equal opportunity rebuke, okay? Just across the board. No, the point is this. Again, everybody's got a number. Whatever number replaces trust. Whatever, whatever level of life that you reach where you no longer trust God, I know I know poor people who trust the Lord and I know rich people who trust the Lord. And, and then, and then I, I know poor people that absolutely have no trust for God and wealthy people and rich people that have absolutely no trust for God. Your money isn't an indicator of your faith at all. The problem is the prioritization of something that is natural instead of prioritization of the, of the goodness and the grace and the gift of God's love. If I put anything else before the Lord, I've made it an idol. Amen? That's what James is going after here. He's going after our hearts. So he keeps going into verse 4. So the, the, the first challenge is that we've made an idol or these people have made an idol of their money. The second challenge comes from verse four. James' second problem here is that these wicked folks got rich by fraud instead of by trusting in God. Look what he says in verse four. Listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you've cheated for their pay. You hired all these people, told them they were gonna get paid for a full day's work. And then when you got done, and when they got done doing all the work, you, you sent them off packing, didn't pay them. That's called fraud. That's called dishonesty. That's called cheating. Can I tell you something? If you got to cheat to get it, you ain't blessed. If you got to cheat to get it, you ain't blessed. 
If you got to cut some legal corner, you're not blessed. Don't turn around and give God glory for something you borrowed and cheated and begged and stole to get. Oh, it's so good to be a pastor. It's just so good to preach the word. Amen. No, this is coming from a habitual cheater in board games and card games, okay? When we, when we play board games with my children, I am always cheating. Just because it's fun. But that's only with board games and card games and only to make people laugh. But listen, on a, in a serious note, if, 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 you have to, if it costs you your integrity, it's not worth it. If it costs you your character, it's not worth it. And it's certainly not the blessing of God. I like how the New King James used the word fraud. Because that's what it is. All right, let's keep the encouragement going. Verse 5. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. I kept getting this image, and I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but I've seen it because I, I geek out on funny things like French cuisine. But when they're, I don't know if you've ever watched French people raising geese for foie gras. Do you know what foie gras is? Foie gras is the liver of geese that they use. You can either fry it. It's like super rich and delicious and you can either fry it or you can pack it into these molds and make pate and make all kinds of gloriously delicious things. But in order to get this goose's liver, to it's, it's got to be super fat. It's got to be like engorged fat and then they kill the goose and they got this huge fatty liver and they make foie gras out of it and it's amazing. But if you've ever seen how they do this to these poor geese to get them to produce this foie gras, they take a hose, like a pretty good size hose, that's just connected to some big mechanism filled with goose food, and they shove it down the throat of these geese. They hold their head back and they just, you know, and they just shove it down there and they just pump these geese straight into their stomach filled with food and they fatten themselves up. And as I was reading this, that's the image that I got in my mind. These wicked rich are satisfying their every desire. Force-feeding themselves on the world. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, by on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's, there's a difference in the life of a Christian, in the life of a, of a believer whom God has blessed. They may have an abundance of blessing. They may have millions of dollars and all kinds of great things. And, and the purpose of it in their hearts is not to satisfy their own desire, but to become radically generous, become a radical giver, and lay hold of the life that is truly life. James is calling out the wicked rich for satisfying their own desires. Their only goal was always selfishness. The pattern you get from these first six verses is this, idolatry, fraud, selfishness. That's what James is really going after in this passage. He's not going after your money. James doesn't care if you got money. Just do the right thing with what God gives you. 
Amen. Can I say that again? God, James, James doesn't care about whether you have money or if you don't have money. It's all, it makes no difference. Money simply an amplifier of who you are. So let's make sure that the who we are part is consistent with God's word. Let's make sure that we're not filling our lives with idolatry, that we're not filling our lives with selfishness. Let's make sure we're not cheating and frauding people around us. Listen, can I tell you something? You don't got to be rich to be a fraud. Deal with these issues in your life, man. Lay this stuff on the altar. If you see idolatry in your heart, man, deal with it quickly. If you see idolatry, if the Lord shows you a place where you're putting something ahead of him in your life and in your priorities, man, deal with that quickly. Lay that thing down so that God can minister grace. All right, have you had enough of that? <laughs> Let's keep going. Now James moves into a new a new area of, of, of encouragement. He's starting, he's starting to encourage us. Okay. He's starting to come around to being nice. Dear brothers and sisters, verse seven, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage. For the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you're going to be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. Doesn't that sound like Matthew chapter 7? Judge not, lest you be judged. We talked about that last week, so I'm not going to get into it. But, but look at this word that he's giving us here. This word called patience. Verse 10, for examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. Man, there's just something so honorable and worthy of, about the character of a person who stays true to the things of God even when life gets difficult for that person. I don't know if you've ever done this before, and I'm not trying to ruin your day, but... If you've never done it, go read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Have you ever, anybody ever heard of that book before? Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a book that chronicles the lives of so many early church people from the first and second century AD. And it talks about all these people who died at the hands of the Roman Empire and so many people who died at the hands of, uh, well, a, a lot of different scenarios, not just the Romans. But early first century church members that as the gospel was going into the four corners of the world, these men and these women literally gave their lives and laid their lives down for the cause and for the sake of Christ. Man, you want to jerk the slack out of your own life? Go read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Realize that every one of these disciples that Jesus had, with the exception of the Apostle John, every one of them was martyred. Peter was martyred. They, they crucified him. And, 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 and history tells us they crucified him on a cross that was shaped like an X. So they spread his body out like this. And just before they went to crucify him in this fashion, he asked for them to do it upside down. Reason being, he didn't want to be crucified in the same manner that Jesus did because he didn't want to take anything away from the cross of Christ. James was martyred. Thomas went and preached in India, martyred. Doubting Thomas, the guy that everybody loves to rag on, Doubting Thomas, 
went and brought the gospel to, the, to what is now modern-day India and was killed, persecuted. Matthew, Bartholomew, Andrew, they were all of them. They were all murdered, martyred for the sake of Jesus. The only one that wasn't was John the Beloved. He was so spiritual that when they tried to kill him, they couldn't. The history tells us that, I don't know why I'm getting into this, but it's important, so I'm just going to keep going. History tells us that the Apostle John, was they tried so many different times and so many different ways to kill him, and he refused to die. They put, history says that they put him in a vat of boiling oil, which was one of the ways that they martyred people in the Roman government. They, they put him into a big deep fryer, and he didn't die. They didn't know what to do with John, so they sent him to this Greek island called Patmos, which was the place that they sent only the most vile criminals. The only people that were on the island of Patmos were the people that society had no idea what to do with because they were so wicked and so terrible that there was no hope. They couldn't put them in jail because they, they would just turn the jail upside down. They were such a problem that the only thing they could do is refuge or, 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 or uh, take them and dump them off at this barren island where there's nowhere for them to live and hopefully they'll just die slowly. And that's what they did to the Apostle John. He went to the island of Patmos. He was there for like a couple days, went into a cave, had a vision, went to heaven, wrote the book of Revelation, came back, and then they took him to Ephesus and he pastored in Ephesus till he died after he was 100 years old. It pays to walk with Jesus. <laughs> Amen. Well, that's not what James is talking about. It kind of is, though. <laughs> no, it actually is. Because these people, again, let me remind you, we talked about this 10 weeks ago in the very beginning of this. These people that James is writing to are in the midst of the most intense and heated persecution that they have ever experienced in their lives. Not only are they under the, the scourge of the current Roman Empire, just for being Christians, just for being Christians, their lives are being persecuted. Not only is it coming from one side of the Roman government, it's also coming from the other side, which is their family and their culture and the Jewish heritage at that time. So they're getting it from both ends, man. They're getting it from both sides. And James, as he begins this turn into his, into his encouragement, he's getting ready to land the plane. You can tell his, his letter is getting ready to come to a close. He, he kind of turns the corner. He says, all right, I've been, I've been rebuking y'all for four chapters. Now let me give you some encouragement. And he says, you too must be patient. Think about the farmer who is patient and nurturing these plants. He can't wait for this plant to give him the fruit that he worked so hard to, to, to harvest. You too must be patient, he says in verse 8. Take courage. Oh, thank you. Thank God. Finally, James is encouraging us a little bit. Take courage. Why? The coming of the Lord is at hand. Do you know that this is a message for you today? just as much as it was a message to them. Take courage, man. The coming of the Lord is near. I don't know if Jesus will come in my lifetime. I sure hope that he does. I'd love to be here. I'd love to be here when the, when the skies open up 
and the sound of the trumpet comes from heaven. And we all get caught up to meet with Jesus together in the clouds. Man, I would love to be here for that. I mean, I'm going to be here for that either way. I would just love for it to happen in my lifetime. But James says, take courage. Do you know that courage must be taken? Amen. Courage must be taken. It must be laid a hold of. Courage is not always the natural byproduct of life. Courage is the byproduct of you being with the Lord. Courage is the byproduct of you being in the Word. Courage is the byproduct of your prayer life. He says, take courage. Lay hold of courage, brothers and sisters. For the coming of the Lord is near. Be patient with each other. I like that patience and courage to James are of like the utmost importance. Especially as we get closer to the Lord's return. I want to highlight for you one Greek word before I close today. And that's the word patience. It's one of my favorite Greek words in the whole New Testament. You'll like this one, Isabel. Isabel's become my Greek buddy. <laughs> um, the, word, the word patience in the Greek is so important. Like I said, it's one of my favorites. It's a compound word, and the word is makrothumeo. And, 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 and it's a compound of two, of two thoughts and of two words. Macro is the word which means long, means distance. And the word thumeo comes from the Greek word thumos. And the word thumos is the word which, you've heard me talk about this before, no doubt, but it's the word which describes a boiling over and then a receding. And then a boiling over and then a receding and a boiling over and a receding. The only thing, the best thing I can liken it to is when you're boiling potatoes. Anybody cook? And you're at home and you're getting ready to make mashed potatoes. So you cut them up into pieces and you fill a pot with water and salt and whatever. And you put them on the boiler and they boil. And after they really get going, I don't know why with potatoes. They're just starchy little demons. But they, they just, with potatoes in particular, they have this tendency of swelling up inside the pot and boiling over onto your burner. And it's, it happens all the time in our house. We'll set some potatoes to boil, and then we go, my wife and I will be cooking. I'm over here talking. We're chopping. And then all of a sudden, we hear that, and we turn around, and there it is, boiling over. That's what the word, it's the best word picture I can come up with for the word thumos. It means to boil over and then recede, and then to boil over and recede, and to boil over and recede. And this word patience, macrothumea, macrothumos, means to put a long distance between yourself and a boil over. I don't know if you've ever looked at a parent who is particularly patient with their children. The kid is doing everything in their power to get a beating. And the parent is just like, Okay, Johnny, it's going to be all right. Okay. Not in my house. <laughs> Just be honest. None of my kids are in the room so I can say that. But when you look at patience, and I mean you really look at patience, you realize that patience maintains its cool. 
matter what the situation looks like and no matter for how long the situation looks that way. To be truly patient means that no matter what the situation dictates, you are a long, macro, long way away from an explosion of emotions. You have trained your flesh to have a long fuse. That's patience. Can I tell you, this is utterly important the closer that we get to the coming of the Lord. Why? Because the wickedness of man is becoming more and more and more apparent. And that requires patience from the church of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you that you've got to take your anger and put it on the shelf long enough for your emotions to reclaim and recapture the love of God for the people around you so that you don't respond with an explosion of emotions? Even if you're right, even if somebody around you is wrong. Last time I checked, we're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last time I checked, we have a responsibility to maintain our patience so that when the words come out of my mouth, they're graceful words. They're seasoned. The Bible talks about our words being seasoned with salt. What does salt do? It, it, it preserves and it increases flavor. The words that come out of your mouth ought to increase the people that you're speaking to. And they ought to bring and deliver grace to preserve those people. The closer we get to the coming of the Lord, the more darkness looks darker in the world around us. That's the, what the Bible tells us. Darkness, Isaiah chapter 60 says it so clear. Darkness covers the earth and great darkness of the people, but the glory of the Lord shall arise upon us. Our job is to maintain our patience the closer we get to the coming of the Lord. That's what James is telling us. He goes on to ask the question, do you have the strength to endure? From verse 11 on down, he begins to talk about people like Job who endured tremendous things. I got to looking at Job a little bit. Everybody, everybody loves to talk about Job. Most people don't remember. They like to amplify Job's trial. Most people don't remember that Job's trial was very brief. God bless you. Job's trial was very brief. And on the other end of his trial, God doubled him. Everything that Job lost, God gave it back to Job twice over. I was looking it up trying to find if there's any information anywhere out there to try to find how long Job's trial actually was, and there really is no conclusive way to know. But we do know that it was brief. In fact, most of my studies, that most of the study that I've done is, I concluded that it was less than a year that James was in his, or Job was in his bad spot. That tells me that Job endured a bad season. Not a bad life. 
I keep telling my kids this because they have bad days and they come home and they're frustrated and they don't know what to do with their bad days and I keep trying to tell them, just have patience, you're going to be all right, it's going to be okay. And I remind them, I say this to them all the time, a bad day does not equal a bad life. And if you really want to get nerdy, you can go as deep as you want to and you could say that a bad minute does not equal a bad day. A bad day does not equal a bad season. A bad season does not equal a bad life. But the encouragement here and the reminder to us is that in the development of our patience, may we make sure that we're developing our endurance so that we can get to God's intended end. You see, God's desire for Job was where he ended up. Hallelujah, it will preach, brother. I'll tell you what. God's desire, his intention for Job was, was, was where Job ended up. Yeah, he had to go through some bumps in the road and they were hard, but it was a short season. And he came through on the other side. And now we get to look at Job's life and instead of majoring on his challenge, we should major on his endurance because it was his endurance, his faithfulness to God that actually got him to the place where God could do in Job's life what he always wanted to do. James concludes this whole thing, this whole thought, by telling us in verse 12, to be people of our word. Here's where he sounds like Jesus, probably the most in the whole book, because he directly quotes Jesus from Matthew chapter 5. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If there's one more thing James wants you to really be challenged on before he turns the corner and starts to really encourage us for the last half of this chapter, there's one last thing he wants you to know. It's this. Be a person of your word. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Don't do the things you said you weren't going to do. And do the things you said you were going to do. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus says everything else is from the evil one. We, talk, we, we run around talking all the time about making promises to people. Oh yeah, I'll do this for you. Oh yeah, I'll do that. I promise. I guarantee it. No, it'll be done. Yeah, I'll have it for you. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. And then something always comes up. James says, don't be like that. Let your yes mean yes. And your no mean no. Be, be a person that can be counted on. Have the character to be a person that people can rely on. That's what I told my kids yesterday. When my daughter got the messages from a friend, and she came out of her room crying, what am I going to say? Tell her that Jesus loves her and Jesus died for her and Jesus paid a big price for this kid's life. That's the kind of people we need to be. The kind of people that are reliable, that that again, maybe, maybe they don't think you got the coolest clothes. I'm talking to the young people right now for just a second. Maybe they don't think you got the coolest clothes. Maybe you don't have the best shoes. Maybe you're not the coolest kid in the class. Maybe they think something about you is strange or odd. 
in 10 years, can I tell you, none of that's going to matter. Okay? In 15, 20 years, none of that's going to matter. At that point, you're all going to be overweight. Right? <laughs> none of that stuff's going to matter once you start having kids, I'm telling you. In the meantime, can we be the kind of people that the world can rely on? Can, we, can our yes mean our yes and our no mean our no so that when folks get into a tough spot, when they don't know what to do about their life, they reach out to us? I always say, man, let them make fun of you now. When their grandmother's got cancer, they know who they're going to call for prayer. I don't want to spend my whole life trying to prove something to the world and miss out on an opportunity to be the, the tool that God wants in his hand to change the world. In order to do that, we've got to look different. Amen? We've got to sound different. We've got to think different. We've got to be the patient the body of Christ that are looking forward to the return of the Lord. Amen? Are you encouraged this morning? Were you challenged a little bit by that today? I'm real excited about where James has taken us in the, in the conclusion of this book. And I am, man, most of all, I'm just pumped that we studied this book this summer. It has been life-changing. It has been nothing short of life-changing. Now, as we said, we're going we're gonna to be at the park next week, so don't come here going to be baptizing some people and, and, and having fun. Next Sunday is not going to be a church service. Okay, we're just going to, we'll baptize the kids. That'll be quick, boom, done. And then we get to eat hot dogs and throw Frisbees and have fun. We're going to, next Sunday is about having fun together. Okay, so invite some people, bring some friends, bring your family. If you're, if you're getting baptized or your children are getting baptized, uh, bring family, take pictures. This is a, this will be a, an encouraging moment. And then the following week, we'll be back here to conclude James chapter 5. Why don't you stand up to your feet? Thanks again for listening to the Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to see people from all walks of life know Jesus, connect and grow, discover their purpose, and make a difference in this world. If you would like to connect with us further, or if you need prayer or assistance, please visit us at hopeboon.com, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.